his major, history was his minor. But I think also, if you read his book, uh, the class of 1846, journalism was his passion, was his work, and history was his passion. Uh, Jack was a correspondent, a journalist for the Christian Science Monitor for 17 years. He also worked as a media specialist for Vice President Nelson Rockefeller, and he also was press secretary to the Democratic Senator Jeff Bingaman of New Mexico. So he comes to us with a varied background in German journalism. He's written many articles before he wrote these fine books that we mentioned tonight. American Heritage, Civil War Times Illustrated, The New York Times, Sports Illustrated, The New Republic, The Nation, The Los Angeles Times Magazine have all carried works written by Jack Waugh. But what we want to hear about most tonight is his book on the class of 1846. It is prestigious. It has won the New York Civil War Roundtable Fletcher Pratt Literary Award for the best nonfiction book on the Civil War for 1944. It was the main selection of the History Book Club and the alternate selection of the Book of the Month Club. Anyone that has had the opportunity to read it before tonight knows it is a very enjoyable read. So tonight, as we commemorate, by the way, the anniversary of the firing on Fort Sumter on April 12th, we ask Jack to tell us about this class of 1846 and the many people uh, who went to West Point who were to find their destiny in that Civil War which started on the anniversary date tonight. We are delighted to present to you Jack Waugh. Thank you, Carol, very much. Does this have lights up here? That's all right, I'll, I'll, I'll speak in the dark. <laughs> and keep you in the dark while I'm doing it. Yeah. Uh, I had forgotten that this is the uh, anniversary of Fort Sumter. My goodness, we ought to, we ought to all celebrate, I guess. Uh, history, history is such a wonderful subject, such a wonderful thing. And the past is such a wonderful place. I, uh, I can't stay out of it. I return every day to the 19th century. And my wife, Kathleen, never knows whether I'll be home in this century again in time for dinner or not. And uh, here we are going off again into the past. It's a good policy uh, to have eaten first, I believe. I always, I always believe at these places where I speak that it's cocktails at 6, dinner at 7, my speech at 8, and indigestion, indigestion all around by 9. A few thinkers, uh, both wise and wacky, have attempted to define history down through the ages. Henry Ford, who lived very much in the present, is one of those. Ford said, history is bunk. Voltaire, who lived optimistically, as you all know, is another. Voltaire said, history is a pack of tricks which we played upon the dead. But I think I like best what Winston Churchill, that well-known Civil War historian, once said of history. Churchill said, history with its flickering lamp stumbles along the trail of the past, trying to reconstruct its scenes, to revive its echoes, and kindle with pale gleams the passion of former days. What I try to do, as someone who writes history, is to help it along its stumbling trail, to help it as best I can to reconstruct its scenes, revive its echoes, and rekindle the passion of former days. As Carol indicated, I spent a career as a newspaper correspondent reporting 20th century breaking news events. That was before I realized I was a 19th century person. And now I do the same thing in the 19th century. I report breaking news events. I'm uh, about 130 years past my deadline at the present time, but that doesn't matter too much to me. 
Instead of having a career in just one century, I've been lucky and had a career in two. Fortunately, my skills are such, and such as they are, that uh, uh, they are readily transferable from one century to the next. I find there is little difference between reporting a new breaking news story from the past, no matter how long ago it happened, from reporting a breaking news story today. The only difference is all my sources are dead. Now I will assure you that is no disadvantage. Indeed it has great advantages. Dead men can't talk. They can't say no comment or refuse to return a phone call. They can't deny having said or done something they clearly said or did. And as a lawyer recently reminded me, neither can they sue. So I write stories, true stories, or at least as true as the available sources permit, about that most fantastic event of the 19th century, our Civil War. That's what I do. It's what I did in my book, The Class of 1846. I simply told stories. What I'm going to do this evening is to talk to you about irony. And I'm going to begin it, quite naturally, with a story. I'll end with one, too. But this opening story is not in the book. A lot of stories, in fact, aren't in the book. Six chapters got left out because I couldn't stop telling stories. And as my editor at Warner Books explained, the thing had to end somewhere, sometime, that generally the books they published had endings. My opening story, therefore, is resurrected, as they say in Hollywood, that wellspring of stories, from the cutting room floor. It's one of my favorite stories because it is all about what the men of the West Point class of 1846 were all about, about natural friends made into unnatural enemies by a very unnatural war. I tell it to you because it shows the flip side of all the killing and dying in the Civil War. It shows that in all the fire and tumult and bloodshed there ran a countercurrent of enduring love and friendship among enemies that was as much a part of the war and its legacy as the fighting itself. My story is about two men, a Union general named John Gibbon and a Confederate colonel named Burkett Davenport Fry. Gibbon was a short-time member of the class of 1846. He arrived three months late in 1842 in September after the first summer encampment with a handful of other class members who were called SEPs. Everybody else had come in June. Gibbon was slight of build, wiry and handsome. He was born in Pennsylvania but raised in North Carolina. He was very young, younger even than his classmate George McClellan, who until Gibbon arrived was the youngest member in the class and therefore called Babe. You can all imagine George McClellan being called Babe. Gibbon wouldn't last long with the class of 1846. He would be set back in his first year uh, for academic deficiencies and would graduate in 1847 instead. But as you all know, he went on to become a Union Major General, commander of the Great Iron Brigade, a man who seemed made of ice and born for battle. No one had ever seen him either nervous or excited. One fellow officer described him as steel-cold General Gibbon with his sharp nose and up-and-down manner of telling the truth no matter whom it hurts. On the day this story begins, July 3rd, 1863, a date very familiar to you, Gibbon was a brigadier commanding the 2nd Division 
of the Union Second Corps on Cemetery Hill at Gettysburg. The very center of the line, his classmate, Confederate Major General George Pickett, was about to strike in the most famous charge in American history. One of the officers in that long Confederate line, in temporary command of Archer's Brigade in James J. Pettigrew's division, was Colonel Burkett Davenport Fry. Fry's brigade was situated in the exact center of the charging Confederate line, the point where Pettigrew's North Carolinians met Pickett's Virginians. The entire line, by an agreement reached on the field, was to dress on Fry. Fry was also a one-time member of the class of 1846. He flunked out after the second year, another of the many victims of mathematics, which was in those days West Point's Grim Reaper. It had been particularly embarrassing in Fry's case because his grandfather, Joshua, had been, among other things, a mathematics professor at William and Mary College. Despite not graduating, Fry had gone on to become a colonel in the Confederate Army, where he specialized in getting shot. Five times before the war was over, Fry would get shot. At Gettysburg, he would be shot twice, once in the cannonade that preceded the charge and again in the charge itself. But it was an important battle. Uh, I suppose Fry felt it required more lead. At the center of the line, bloody but unbowed, Fry approached the low stone wall behind which the Federal troops under the command of his old classmate, John Gibbon, were hurling a blizzard of bullets, a shower of blue pills, as one Union soldier once described such things. At about the same moment, both Gibbon and Fry were hit. A not surprising event for Fry, a little more out of the ordinary for Gibbon. Now wounded in two places, in the shoulder and the thigh, and unable to go on, Fry fell and was taken prisoner as the Confederate wave receded. Gibbon went on to Baltimore, uh, to a friend's home, to recuperate from his own painful shoulder wound. The home where Gibbon was staying in Baltimore was, like many in the war, particularly in a border state, dramatically, ironically, and tragically split by conflicting allegiances. Gibbon himself had three brothers in the Confederate Army. A son of the house was, in fact, a Confederate soldier and a prisoner at nearby Fort McHenry in his own hometown. And his mother, Gibbon's hostess, drove out almost daily to give him comfort. One day she returned in a state of some excitement and told her convalescing guest that the talk of Fort McHenry was a wounded, captured Confederate colonel named Fry, who was suspected of bushwhacking and murdering a Union colonel in the West. The cowardly murder was a cause celeb of the time and had gotten a lot of indignant play in northern newspapers. Gibbon's hostess told her, told her guest that this suspect, Fry, though seriously wounded in two places, was being kept under guard rather than held in the hospital. Gibbon asked his hostess if she remembered the man's first name. She told him it was a weird name, that she just couldn't recall it. Was it Burkett? Gibbon asked. She was, of course, astonished. Why, yes, she replied, that is the name. Do you know him? Well, Gibbon's memory must uh, surely have been going back at that moment over the years. He must have pictured the gentle classmate with the large, oddly shaped nose, who was known to have loved animals and flowers and children 
and been not good enough and good enough at mathematics. It was if it was the same man, he told her, they had been classmates at West Point. Gibbon wrote the commander at Fort McHenry and said if the Confederate colonel named Fry that he had under guard had been a cadet at West Point in 1842 and 1843, he, Gibbon, was confident he could not be the murderer. Shortly afterward, Fry was released from confinement and returned to the hospital, and Gibbon rode out to Fort McHenry to see for himself if this Fry was really his old classmate. At the hospital, Gibbon was directed to Fry's cot, and there he found him asleep, his arm partially covering his face. It had been 20 years since Gibbon had last seen Fry, but there was that salient nose that could never be forgotten. This was indeed his old classmate. When Gibbon returned half an hour later, Fry was awake and recognized Gibbon immediately. They talked together, these two officers, old friends and classmates, made into enemies by the war. They discovered that the bullet that had nearly taken Fry's arm at Antietam had also come from the gun of one of Gibbon's men. They probably smiled about that and agreed that Gibbon seemed out to get him. They also must have smiled together over the preposterous idea that it had been Fry, gentle Fry, who had bushwhacked the Union colonel in the West. I love that story because it tells me so much about the unbreakable brotherhood of arms that so characterized our Civil War and which I am now going to talk to you about. The class of 1846 is, by my definition, the men who started out together as plebes in 1842 and managed to hang on and graduate four years later, no small accomplishment. But it also includes a small number who fell back into the class from the class ahead. John Adams, the Confederate general riddled with bullets at the Battle of Franklin in 1864 comes to mind. It includes those who slipped back into the class behind, John Gibbon and A.P. Hill, the two most prominent. It also includes a handful who for one reason or another never graduated at all, the Burkett Fries. 59 graduated in 1846, the largest class in West Point history up to that time. It is arguably the most star-studded class of the antebellum years. It was to produce more than a score of Civil War generals on both sides. Let's do a partial class roll call in order of graduating rank. The list will not include all of them, but I know the names it does include will ring some bells here. George Babe McClellan, graduating second, compact, powerfully built, the youngest member and thought to be its brightest and most promising star. One of his professors at West Point said of him, a pleasanter pupil was never called to the blackboard. He was to become for a time general-in-chief of the Union armies. John Gray Foster, graduating fourth, a Union Major General from New Hampshire, one of the best engineers and administrators in the old army. He was a raconteur with a talent for telling a story, and he sported one of the, most, uh, the Army's most impressive beards. Jesse Lee Reno, graduating eighth, a Union Major General, an ordnance expert without peer, Mortally wounded at South Mountain in September 1862, his last words were to a classmate, Samuel Davis Sturgis. Hello, Sam, I'm dead. 
Reno was later immortalized when a gambling town was named for him in Nevada. Darius Nash Cooch, graduating 13th, another Union Major General, a very able and snappish New Yorker who managed in the years after the war to outlive many of his classmates north and south and to write lovingly and sadly their obituaries. Thomas Jonathan Jackson, graduating 17th and not thought to possess any star qualities at all, a stiff-backed eccentric Confederate Lieutenant General whom the world would call Stonewall and one Union officer would call the greatest flanker and rearer that world has ever seen. Truman Seymour, graduating 19th, a not too successful Union Major General, one of the officers in the beleaguered garrison at Fort Sumter in 1861, an artillerist known for his innovative and artistic ways. He married the art professor's daughter and uh, one day in retirement became a successful painter in Florence, Italy. John Adams, graduating 25th, who fell back from the class of 1845, became a hard-fighting Confederate brigadier and fell bullet-riddled at Franklin, saying with his last breath, it is the fate of a soldier to die for his country. Samuel Davis Sturgis, graduating 32nd, a Union brigadier and celebrated Indian fighter in the old army, who finally succeeded in getting his classmate George McClellan's left wing over the Burnside Bridge at Antietam. He later got whumped by Nathan Bedford Forrest at Bryce's Crossroads the day before his 42nd birthday, a year and a half later. Happy birthday, Sam. George Stoneman, graduating 33rd, a Union Major General, commander of cavalry in the Army of the Potomac. Stonewall Jackson's slender, doe-eyed roommate at West Point, who sat an uneasy saddle because of a very painful case of hemorrhoids, and who specialized in raids. Dabney Herndon Mowry, graduating 37th, a very personable, well-liked Virginian who was called Puss in Boots by his men because he was so short and because he wore riding boots almost as tall as he was. He became a highly competent Confederate Major General commanding in Mobile in the final year of the war. He was equally adept, a fellow general once said, with either a sword or a pen. David Rumpf Jones, graduating 41st, an amiable Confederate major general who dictated surrender terms to two of his classmates at Fort Sumter in 1861, made an heroic stand at Antietam in 1862, and some say died of a broken heart after his own troops killed his brother-in-law, a Union colonel in the fighting across Antietam Creek. George Henry Gordon, graduating 43rd, was a Union colonel when he found himself commanding the Federal Rear Guard in the Shenandoah Valley in the spring of 1862. It became his thankless duty to delay the legendary pursuit of the Union Army down the valley by his old classmate Stonewall Jackson. Cadmus Marcellus Wilcox, graduating 54th, a Confederate Major General who wore a plantation hat into battle and prodded his horse, usually a nag, with a long switch. Exceedingly popular in both armies, the best man at U.S. Grant's wedding. He showed up at Appomattox in his skivvies because by then Phil Sheridan had captured everything else he owned. William Montgomery Gardner, graduating 55th, a wildly handsome Confederate brigadier general 
who, like Burkett Fry, was riddled with bullets before the war was over. His last battle, one of the very last of the war, was against his classmate George Stoneman, who was on another cavalry raid. Sam Bell Maxey, graduating 58th, a Confederate Major General, a Kentucky-born lawyer-to-be, gifted with an ability to speak earnestly, emphatically, and at great length. He commanded the Confederate Indians in the last year of the war, and then after the war became a two-term United States Senator from Texas. George Edward Pickett, graduating 59th, dead last, a dandy with perfumed ringlets, a Mexican war hero, and a Confederate major general who sang like a mockingbird and who lost his division at Gettysburg. And then, of course, there were A.P. Hill and John Gibbon, who had hoped to graduate with the rest but got detained, and bullet-ridden Burkett Fry, who never graduated at all. And there were others who you perhaps never heard of, some of them dying before their time, before the war, but who still left indelible footprints behind. One of these was George Horatio Derby of Massachusetts, the leading prankster in West Point history, even to this day, and an exceedingly able and innovative captain of topographical engineers in the old army. I must tell you about George Derby. He was without question the oddest and most interesting and eccentric character in the entire class. Indeed, in the entire army. More eccentric by far than his classmate Stonewall Jackson. He became famous not as a soldier, although had he lived, he probably would have become a Union general and doubtless a very good one. He became famous and made the Dictionary of American Biography as a humorist, and was to die as the war was just beginning. It's probably just as well, because the War of Brothers would have been far too serious for George Derby. I can't resist telling you two Derby stories before I go on. They, uh, not, I tell them not because they are at all relevant, but because they are wonderful. His gift as a prankster which long outlived his West Point days, became legendary and managed on at least two occasions to offend the Secretary of War himself, who in Derby's time in the 1850s was Jefferson Davis. Davis had decided there should be a new Army uniform, and to that end he solicited suggestions from officers in the service. That was a serious mistake. Because Derby responded with a fully illustrated and wholly outrageous proposal. The main characteristic of Derby's new uniform, which had several unique and picturesque features, was a hook sewed into the seat of every pair of trousers. Joined to a companion hook on the cantle of a saddle, the device could hold the drunkest dragoon securely in place. <laughs> Infantrymen could hang camp kettles and other necessities from these same hooks. And in the case of a deficiency of mules, employ themselves for draft purposes. At bedtime, the soldiers could simply hang themselves from their hooks on fence rails. In battle, company commanders with long poles and compatible hooks could wheel their troops into position by the seats of their pants. If a soldier attempted to skedaddle, the officer could simply catch him by the hook in the seat of his pants and grapple him back into line. For officers so employed, this arrangement would have a further advantage. It would require that they stand behind the soldiers in that shower of blue pills rather than in front, which would very likely prolong their lives. It was said that the Secretary of War did not take this proposal in the proper spirit. 
what would have court-martialed Derby if cooler and more fun-loving heads hadn't prevailed. If that is indeed so, then Secretary Davis must have also enjoyed Derby's fetchingly illustrated proposal for the rotary mule howitzer. Derby devised this unique weapon to satisfy the need for a lightweight but rapidly firing gun and tied hard to get two places. It would have been perfect for the Mexican and Indian Wars. The proposal, as formally submitted to the War Department with a straight face, called for two howitzers to be packed on a common mule. One gun was lashed to the beast's back, its muzzle pointed toward the tail, the other to its belly and aimed between its two front legs. Five artillerymen were assigned to each mule, two to each piece. A fifth member of the team, called the Persuader, stood by the mule with a twin sausage stuffer stuffed with oats. When Indians or other legitimate uh, targets appeared, the mule, by a crank movement of the tail, was limbered to the front. It didn't matter which way the mule faced. One gun was always pointed in the front in the right direction in either case. At the command, fire. The top howitzer boomed, and the recoil threw the mule over on its back. Which brought the second gun into position. This was fired in turn, jerking the mule back onto its feet. To have its throat swabbed out with oats and the persuader, uh, by the persuader and the guns reloaded. Derby's illustrations pictured the rotary mule in several different attitudes, looking serene and smilingly content and very well stoked. Derby was a real hoot. He was a prolific writer of humorous articles, sketches, and parodies and a perpetrator of hoaxes which he concocted and carried out completely sober-faced. You can picture uh, uh, a, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of that, of that comedian, but uh, who had a sober face on him all the time, and that was George Derby. Buster Keaton, thank you very much. <laughs> Buster Keaton was, uh, was, was George Derby reincarnated, I do believe. But he was uh, ca carried out all these hoaxes uh, and concocted them while he was a respected, serious-minded captain of topographical engineers on the frontier. He once nearly convinced a general that there was a new gun that could fire around corners. <laughs> and he once built a dam that ran parallel instead of broadside the river. His humorous writings were widely published in the American West in the 1850s and later collected into two books. They would have a profound influence on a young and rising humorist of the time with the pseudonym of Mark Twain. There were others in this class who you also probably never heard of who died heroes' deaths before the Civil War began. Alexander Perry Rogers, of New York and Thomas Easley of Virginia, both killed in the Mexican War. James Stewart, a fearless and dashing South Carolinian, George McClellan's best friend and roommate at West Point, and Oliver H.P. Taylor of Rhode Island, both of whom died painful deaths and bloody saddles in the Indian Wars in the West. Had these men lived, we doubtless would have heard of them in the Civil War. The class of 1846 graduated and went almost immediately to fight the Mexicans under General Zachary Taylor, Winfield Scott, and Stephen Watts Kearney. Where almost without exception, they served with brilliance, courage, and distinction. After the Mexican War, a score of them went to the Indian Wars in the West, where they learned to fight a different kind of enemy altogether. And then there was Fort Sumter, and suddenly, quite painfully, 
They had to choose up sides and fight one another in an entirely different kind of war altogether. The thing that has always attracted me to the Civil War is not its battles and not its strategies, not its detailed movements of regiments and brigades and divisions, not its storm and fury, as interesting as those things are. What has always attracted me are its people and its ironies. When you have brothers fighting brothers, you have irony. When you have West Pointers, who were in effect brothers, who for four years lived together and learned together and suffered together and laughed together and cried together and were groomsmen at one another's weddings and then finally found that they must fight one another, you have irony. These ironies and relationships abound at every turn in the Civil War. I'm going to tell you half a dozen brief stories here that involve the members of the class of 1846 just to illustrate the point and give you the flavor. For a time, in their first two years at West Point, George McClellan, the precocious Pennsylvanian, and A.P. Hill, the short-tempered but whimsical Virginian, were roommates. They were the best of friends. They would remain the best of friends until the day they were separated by death when one of them would fall to a federal bullet in the closing days of the Civil War at Petersburg. But they were also rivals and finally enemies. When both were some years out of West Point and uh, the hormones were flying, they fell in love with the same woman, the stunning and desirable Nellie Marcy of Hartford, Connecticut. The story of their courtship of Miss Nellie is in my book, so I won't retell it here except to say that it was very complicated. One of them won her, then lost her. One of them lost her, then won her. And she loved one, but married the other. As I said, it was complicated. One of... Uh, Several years later, in the Civil War, when A.P. Hill, the suitor who had won her then lost her, was a Confederate general, he was known to attack the troops of George McClellan, his dear friend, classmate, and fellow suitor, who had lost her then won her, with such ferocity that the Federal soldiers, as one story has it, scrambled out of their bedrolls to answer the beat of the drums, moaning, My God, Nell, why didn't you marry him? <laughs> that was ironic. In April 1861, two classmates from the class of 1846, both New Englanders, John Gray Foster and Truman Seymour, were captains together in the Union garrison at Fort Sumter. Foster was its engineering officer. Seymour commanded one of its two artillery companies. Together they endured the nearly two nights and two days of bombardment that opened the Civil War. And when the time came to surrender, the Confederate officer commanding the delegation that landed at the wharf to dictate terms was their classmate, George Rumpf Jones, Pierre Beauregard's chief of staff. Jones, a likable cadet, they had all known affectionately at the academy as neighbor, had come to them that spring of 1861 on a very unneighborly mission. That was ironic. George McClellan won the first Union victories of the Young War in the hills of western Virginia in the spring and early summer of 1861. In July, when he occupied the little town of Beverly on the Stanton-Parkersburg Pike on the eastern slope of Rich Mountain, he learned that Laura Arnold lived there. He became a frequent visitor to the Arnold home during his brief stay in Beverly. Before he was summoned to Washington to save the Union, because he and Laura had something in common. She was a sister of one of McClellan's West Point classmates, 
and it gave them a special tie. Laura's maiden name had been Jackson, and her brother, though thought to be a little peculiar at the academy, and now a rebel colonel commanding Confederate troops at Harper's Ferry, was nonetheless a classmate, and therefore dear to McClellan. That was ironic. When that same Jackson, during the following spring, was now known as Stonewall and was making military history flanking and rearing in his classic Shenandoah Valley campaign, there was a colonel in Union General Nathaniel Banks's command named George Henry Gordon of the 2nd Massachusetts. When Jackson's Confederate force stormed into Front Royal on May 23, 1862, Gordon was in Strasburg, a dozen miles away. And knowing Jackson, he also knew what it meant. Banks's outgunned army was in peril. When finally in disorganized skedaddle, Banks left his retreating rear in Gordon's hands, the two classmates, friends at West Point, found themselves fighting one another. Jackson trying to advance and kill, Gordon to delay and destroy. When it was all over and Jackson had won, but his classmate Gordon had acquitted himself with credit. One of Gordon's staff was taken prisoner, trying to win some help in his efforts to make things easier for his federal prisoners. Gordon's man went directly to Jackson to get the help through connections. He identified himself as a major in the 2nd Massachusetts, commanded by Colonel Gordon, who is, I believe, he told Jackson in a meaningful aside, an old friend of yours. Jackson stared at the major with his drill-bit gaze and said curtly, stiffly, as was his way, he was, sir, once a friend. So much for connections. When Gordon later heard the story, he grieved how this terrible war had so drastically changed everything and the boy companion of his West Point years, that honest, dear old Jack, who as the famous and dreaded Stonewall Jackson now remembered him no longer as a friend. That was ironic. At Antietam, later that same fall of 1862, A.P. Hill was making his hard, hot, dusty march from Harper's Ferry to Antietam to save Lee's army. In happier times, there might have been an impressive class reunion on the banks of the Antietam. McClellan was there commanding the Union Army. Hill was about to attack that dear friend and fellow suitor once more with his accustomed ferocity. Indeed, he was about to ruin his old roommate's day altogether and probably cost him his career as well. Sam Sturgis was there, commanding a division in Ambrose Burnside's Ninth Corps. If there was anybody more beloved of Hill than McClellan, it was Burnside. And Hill was about to ruin Burnside's day as well. John Gibbon was there. George Gordon was there. Truman Seymour was there. Darius Cooch was hovering nearby with a division. Old friends and classmates all, now enemies. Jesse Reno would have been there, but he had been killed on South Mountain only three days before. On Hill's own side of the war, David Neighbor Jones was there. Burkett Fry was there, waiting for a bullet. And of course, old Jack was there. But Jackson might just as well have been an, a Yankee as far as Hill was concerned. They didn't get on and never did. Indeed, Jackson had had Hill under arrest until just a few days before for supposed dereliction of duty. Duty, that is, as Jackson saw it. But then what subordinate general didn't Jackson have under arrest under similar charges at one time or another? That congregation of old friends and enemies on the banks of the Antietam 
desperately fighting one another throughout that bitter day. It was, it was, it was very ironic to me. The final irony of the Hill-Jackson relationship would play out at Chancellorsville some half year later. On the night Jackson was gunned down by the rifles of his own 18th North Carolina on May 2nd, 1863, one of the first men to reach his side was his old classmate, A.P. Hill. They were still feuding. Hill was pressing General Lee to order a hearing to clear his name of Jackson's charges. But there on that darkening field at Chancellorsville, at that instant in time, all this became irrelevant. As Hill gently cradled his wounded classmate's head in his arms and worked to staunch the flow of his blood. When Hill stood to leave, he was now in command of the fallen Jackson's Corps in the face of the enemy, he spoke briefly, gently, once more to his old classmate. He told him he would keep the demoralizing word of his wounding from the troops, and Jackson thanked him. They were the last words between the two men on this earth, and they had been words of comfort and tenderness. The deadly volley had shattered their bitter differences. That was ironic. Even as Jackson lay wounded on the field at Chancellorsville, another little irony was building in Richmond in the Confederate rear. After his arm was amputated, Jackson's first thought was to send for his wife, Anna, in Richmond. He called for one of his young aides, Joseph G. Morrison, who was also Anna's brother, to ride to Richmond and bring her back. To get there, Morrison had to pass through territory occupied at the time by the cavalry of Union Major, thought to be two of the most unobtrusive and reticent cadets ever to attend the academy. Now Stoneman was raiding behind the Confederate lines with his hemorrhoids. And it was through those lines that Morrison must ride to fetch his sister, Stonewall's wife. Captured briefly, then escaping and walking and riding, making progress toward Richmond as best and as fast as he could, Morrison finally arrived to find his sister distraught. She had heard only that her husband had been wounded at Chancellorsville, but did not know how badly. She was frantic to be at his side. But the wrenching irony of it all was that the way to her wounded and dying husband had been sealed off, not by an enemy, really, but by a classmate. Had Stoneman known, he probably would have sent an escort or taken her to Jackson's side himself, because that is the way these men were. But how ironic that at that desperate moment it was that classmate, roommate, and friend who was keeping her from her dying husband's side. To me, it is one of the most wonderful phenomena that that terrible war, which was to shatter so many lives and allegiances and sadden so many harsh sides, could not in all of its fury shatter these old friendships forged at West Point. Theirs was an affection that was to survive the worst the war had to give. The moment in time that symbolizes that enduring brotherhood of arms best to me was an hour and a half on April 9, 1865. At about noon that day, generals from both sides in the lull of a ceasefire and waiting the momentous uh, meeting at the McLean House between Generals Lee and Grant themselves met informally on the steps of the Appomattox Courthouse. It was late morning, and the contending armies were ranged on either side of the town, with their picket lines out and their guns at the ready, but quiet. The Union soldiers stared at Lee's ragged little army and agreed that it was a sad sight indeed 
cavalry, artillery horses, mules, and half-starved soldiers in a confused mass, one Union officer wrote. It was a scene to melt the bravest heart. In the town, in the square between the two armies, John Gibbon dismounted in front of the courthouse steps and suddenly found himself in a growing cluster of other generals who had been drifting in from both sides of the line. Among them were the familiar faces of men, old comrades he had not met but in battle for four long years. They smiled and greeted one another, grasping hands as they had so often done in the old army when they were at peace. As their respective armies waited, suspended between peace and war, the old friends, fellow West Pointers mostly, stood together on the courthouse steps and wondered which way the scales would now tip. Were they grasping hands now, only to part and fight again? Mutual healths were toasted, and the little group, growing steadily, began to spread out from the steps into the square and onto the nearby fence. The Confederate Corps commander, John B. Gordon, entertained the group with details about how he thought the Confederacy about played out. The last hope had been riding on his attempt to break through on the Lynchburg Road that morning. It was decided that pending Lee's anticipated meeting with Grant, which was expected momentarily, hostilities should not be resumed or troops moved from their present positions on either side without due and timely notice. Gibbon proposed that if Grant and Lee couldn't come to terms and stop the fighting, they should order their soldiers to fire only blank cartridges to prevent further bloodshed. The generals continued this rump negotiating session and reunion for nearly an hour and a half. Uncountable pairs of field glasses were trained on them from both armies. It was, one reporter wrote, a singular spectacle. For the West Pointers among them, it was a particularly poignant reunion. It had never been in their hearts to hate the classmates they were fighting. Their lives and affections for one another had been indelibly framed and inextric inextricably intertwined in their academy days. No adversity, war, killing, or political estrangement could undo any of that. Now, meeting together when the guns were quiet, they yearned to know that they would never hear their thunder or be ordered to take up arms against one another again. But this reunion at the courthouse square was but a meeting awaiting a more important meeting, which would decide if it was to be peace or war. After an hour and a half, it broke up. The officers returned to their respective lines, all hoping there would be no further bloodshed all regretting that they had not the power among them to end the fighting at once. Twenty years later, when the guns were long since silent, there was yet another meeting, this time at Antietam again. It was Decoration Day, May 30, 1885, and it was different from most such past celebrations at Antietam. It was special. For the first time, Confederate soldiers had crossed the river for the occasion. They had come to hear George McClellan, their old enemy, member of the class of 1846, who had been asked to deliver the annual address. Like many of those who wore the gray, it was the first time since the battle that McClellan had revisited this scene of exultation and sorrow. Nearly 23 years had passed. Like many of the veterans waiting to hear him, he and Nellie had grown, had grown children of their own. McClellan had run against Abraham Lincoln in the presidential election of 1864 and lost. He had since been the governor of New Jersey and had led a distinguished career in civil life. Now he stood at the rostrum at Antietam. 
He looked about him a moment and remembered when he had last stood there. The smoke of battle still wreathed these hills and filled these valleys, he reminded the old soldiers. These rocks still re-echoed the harsh sounds of strife, and the ground was all too thickly strewn with the forms of the quiet dead and of those still writhing in agony. He gazed on the veterans of both armies, now sitting beside one another in peace, and he spoke to them as one. Those who fought on either side, he began, men who, clad in gray, followed the noble Lee. There was a stir among the Confederates as they uncovered in memory of the name of their old and beloved commander. McClellan continued, and we who wore the, wore the blue. They were all there now, he told them, with a common purpose to testify their reverence for the valiant dead. Let us bury all animosity, all bitter recollections of the past, McClellan urged them. I am glad, inexpressibly glad, that I have been permitted to live until the fame and exploits of these magnanimous rivals have become the common property of our people. When the ability and virtues of Robert Lee and the achievements of the magnificent Army of Northern Virginia, as well as the heroism and renown of the proud Army of the Potomac, have already become a part of the common heritage of glory of all the people of America. He wished, McClellan confessed, that just once more he could take Lee by the hand, that splendid man and soldier, as he had in those long past days when we served together in the land of the Montezumas. But that could never be. It was too late. Lee was gone. When McClellan finished speaking, the veterans of both armies rose and marched together, and he watched them pass in review, and he took their salutes. As his own soldiers passed the dais, they perhaps remembered how he had once so moved on their hearts as the wind sways the rows of standing corn. The men in gray perhaps remembered how they had marched and fought so hard for old Jack and stormed so willingly into the cannon's mouth for Bobby Lee. That's the way it was for them and continues to be for us, a war of such ironies, a time of such passion. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you very much, Jack, for just a wonderful talk. Before Jack takes some questions and comments, we'd like to present you with our traditional gift. If I may give you this mug and read the inscription, Jack, presented to Jack Waugh for gallant service, Civil War Roundtable of Chicago, April 12th, 1996. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. And if they ask a question, maybe you could repeat the question. Any questions? Sure. Yes, sir. Well, the, uh, the one other in that meeting from the class of 46 was uh, Cadmus uh, Wilcox. And as I as I'd mentioned, uh, the question was, what other generals from the class of 46 were at that meeting uh, in Appomattox, the courthouse steps? Cadmus Wilcox was the only one from his class who was there. He came a little late uh, riding a nag, and he was all dressed up in a, 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 a long coat. And it was a fairly nice day, a warm day. And Gibbon asked him, he said, uh, are, are you so cold you have to wear that coat? And uh, Wilcox opened it up, and he had nothing but his underwear on. And uh, he had said that, uh, you know, he turned to Sheridan at that point and said, uh, this is all I got left, and you can't have this until you take me prisoner. But there were several other generals, none in the class of 46, but uh, Chamberlain was there, and uh, Sheridan was there, and uh, Longstreet was there, and uh, uh, Old was there. It was a very uh, interesting group, and it kept growing as, as the hour and a half went on. Yes, sir. Oh, and the spirits of 
بہت شکریہ ادا کروں گا پہلے آپ کے پاس وہاں والد صاحب کے پاس جا کے بہت بہت شکریہ ان کو بھیج Thank you so much, Mr. Newman. I take that as a great compliment coming from that source, believe me. Yes, sir. There has been one biography, an excellent biography, and I cite it in my, in my bibliography in my book, it was, it was written by a, a, a gentleman named Stewart, who also wrote a micro-history of the, of the Battle of Gettysburg, of Pickett's Charge. Uh, same, same author. The, uh, the uh, biography is a very good one, and it's hard to get. You know, it's hard to find, but uh, it's well worth the trip. And uh, he tells many of the wonderful stories. I just told two, and uh, some of the things he did were just absolutely wonderful. Uh, some of the hoaxes he pulled. And, uh, you know, if you can get that book, it would be well worth your time to read it. Yes, oh, but they're way a long time out of print. There was a, a, a couple of them. Uh, he had two nicknames, Skibob and John Phoenix. And there are books under both of those titles. And they are a, anthologies of his humorous works. One was put out bef uh, before he died. He died in... in uh, May of 1861, just as the war was beginning. Maybe he knew it was going to be too serious. He died of, he had carbuncles and he was losing his sight and uh, he had sunstroke. He was down along the Gulf building lighthouses and he got sunstroke and he just, he'd been, he'd been failing health quite, uh, quite for a long time. He was very, he was, there are pictures of him in my book, but he was just a razor thin cadet during those times. And by the time he was a captain in the engineers, he had ballooned out to 200 pounds, and that didn't help his health either. This, uh, this, this silence sometimes reminds me of a press conference that I attended for uh, Harry Truman once, and it was after Harry Truman was out of the presidency, but there was a pause in the questioning, and nobody seemed to have a question. All these newsmen, no questions. And uh, Truman looked at him and smiled and said, what's the matter, boys? You run out of soap? So we may be out of soap, Carol. Oh, here's one more. We got one more. Yes, sir. What did or didn't happen to Charles Seaforth Stewart? Stewart was, uh, became a colonel in George McClellan's army and was an engineering officer. And uh, he became a, a general after the war sometime. But he never made a, a distinguished record. He was one, he? he was number one in the class and uh, graduated. In fact, McClellan was chasing him the whole time and uh, uh, was pretty, pretty peaked at the whole thing. He just couldn't catch, catch up with him. <laughs> and, uh, but he was a brilliant guy, and he, uh, he, had, he had gotten a very good prep school training. He was a, he was a son of, of, uh, of uh, missionaries, and he was born at sea, uh, just off the coast of Hawaii, and uh, therefore his middle name was Seaforth, Charles Seaforth Stewart. Once again, once again, we thank you, Jack, and we really appreciated the beauty you brought to us tonight. We thank all of you for coming also, and we hope to see you on the battlefield tour and then at our May meeting to hear about Chancellorville and the cavalry with our own Marshal Krolik. Thank you very much. Thank you. We really enjoyed this. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Thank you.